0: Birdnote presents So there's a saying I've heard since moving to sagebrush country. Wolves are Democrats. Which I guess means they're not welcome out here. They're a symbol of government regulatory overreach and city liberal environmentalists telling country people how to live on the land and how to deal with the predators that might attack their livestock. Well, The counter to that saying, I would add, is cows are Republicans. Some more radical environmentalists want them gone completely. And there is a lot to dislike about cows. Anyone who's hiked through land where cows are grazing has seen those dusty mud wallows they make, or the patches of exposed land where they've eaten the grass down to the nub, the riverbanks they've denuded and trampled, the poop everywhere. And that's to say nothing of our industrial meat supply chain in this country, right? The feedlots, the slaughterhouses, the meat packing facilities. And then there's the fact that cows emit methane that contributes to climate change. And of course, cows are also a problem for sage grouse. Overgrazing destroys grouse habitat. But cows are also a symbol of a way of life and a way of making a living close to the land that some in sagebrush country feel is under attack. The press releases I would get from environmental groups when I was working for public radio in Seattle often painted ranchers and their cows as a threat to everything good and wild in the world. But when I moved rural, I wanted to find out if that was really true on the ground. So I started volunteering to help move cows for local ranchers in the Metau Valley. Good girl. Good girl. Come here, baby. It's below freezing, about 7 a.m. on a February morning, when I go catch my mare, Pistol, in her snowy pasture. She doesn't seem too interested in working this morning. What do you think, Pistol? You ready to go? I we're late, and I don't like being late for ranchers. (laughs) All right, mount up. All right, sweet mare. We'll move some cows. Pistol and I follow Craig Bozal into his field to help him separate out some bulls from his cows. Craig's a fifth-generation rancher here in the valley, and he's been patiently showing me how to herd cows since I moved here a few years ago. Craig and I have ridden together for hours. He's not a big talker, but I've found that if I just ride along quietly with him, he'll start telling me things. About what he's seeing on the landscape, the plants and animals, and how things have changed or the history of this valley and the people here. Though, he's not a big fan of doing recorded interviews. Good girl. Good girl. I'm painting a glamorous cowboy picture here, I realize, riding along with this Good old girl. rancher. Craig's in his 70s. But then, you get the phone call to help move cows at 7 a.m. in the ice and snow of February, and you start to see what ranching is really about. Herding cows is kind of like... Uh playing Chinese checkers, drunk, with 1,200-pound to 1,500-pound bouncy balls on a horse, in my case, that listens to me about 50% of the time, give or take 60%. Easy does it. Craig rides up ahead to the corral to start sorting bulls, and Pistol and I hang back to keep the cows and their calves from running all the way back down the pasture, which is really more like a hockey rink. Girl pistol, it's icy, be careful. That's it, babies. Now the question is whether or not you can have cows and have sage grouse as well. Because they often get pitted against each other. You know, is it the way of life and is it working landscapes or is it conservation land for a threatened bird? And can the two coexist? I'm Ashley Ahern, and this is Grouse, a show about the most controversial bird in the West and what it's taught me about hope, compromise, and life in rural America. There aren't any sage-grouse left in the Meadow Valley. So I went to Idaho, sage-grouse country, to spend time with a rancher there. But on the way, I stopped at a different ranch, not far from Sun Valley, Idaho. It's a research facility owned by the University of Idaho called Rinker Rock Creek Ranch. Scientists are using it as a sort of living laboratory to study cows and grouse on 10,000 acres of sagebrush. But when I got to the ranch, I found these scientists have some funny ways of collecting their data. It's just about 2 o'clock in the morning. And I, uh, my alarm went just went off uh, to get up and go meet up with Tracy Johnson and um, try to tag some grouse in the middle of the night. Uh, the GPS caller said she can track them and figure out how they interact with livestock. So I think this might count as my first grouse rodeo. Let's see how this
1: goes. <laughs> So we play music
0: Uh-huh. And we're walking around. And it just kind of masks our sound when we're approaching birds. Jordan Raybon just finished his master's at University of Idaho and is helping Tracy Johnson with the trapping. Tracy's the director of research at Rinker Rock Creek Ranch. What do you got playing, just so I know? Uh, this is uh, Scorpions. Uh, 321 is the name of the song. <laughs> We park the pickup truck and walk into the sagebrush. Jordan in the lead with the spotlight in the boombox. Tracy's following him with the giant net. And then there's me in the back with my recording equipment flailing along in the pitch black. So 15 minutes go by, no talking, just walking, listening to heavy metal. And then some 80s comes on. Still no grouse. I'm sorry, this is fucking hilarious. <laughs> like, what the hell am I doing right now? What the
1: hell are you doing right now? <laughs> I know, I, don't, I often think if somebody was watching us from, from like, down the road, it, they would not be able to figure out what we're doing. And why are they playing music? Right,
0: It's like lost ravers in the desert.
1: <laughs> Making our parents proud out here. <laughs>
0: It's been about an hour and a half of this, just walking along, stopping every few minutes so Jordan can shine the spotlight in a big circle around us in the hopes of catching the glint of grouse eyes in the sagebrush. We've cycled through Will Smith, Christina Aguilera, some Beastie Boys, still no grouse. Then Jordan puts on some country music, one of Tracy's favorite songs, Two Step. He's scanning the sagebrush with his spotlight, and then he freezes. I got one. Ready? He spins the volume dial on the boombox way up and we take off at a run. Jordan gets to the spot first and he's flashing the light all over to confuse the grouse. And there's this clatter of wings and a black shadow takes off ahead of us. And Tracy's net misses it by inches as it flaps out of the glare of the spotlight and disappears into the sagebrush. I, I saw it fly up like right there. Yeah.
1: It just went up that hill.
0: Yeah, that way.
1: I kind of heard it land. I won't be able to find it again. Okay. We got close.
0: What's that? We got close. Okay. So
1: yeah, that's grouse trapping. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I really think they liked the country music.
1: Yeah, it's the song, man. That's like one of my favorites.
0: By 5 a.m., the sky was starting to lighten, and Tracy and Jordan called it quits. We didn't catch any grouse, but these two will be out here again with the boombox and the spotlight and the net. They're in the early phase of this research, but once they get some birds GPS tagged, they'll be able to pick apart a very tricky set of interactions on this landscape between grouse and cows that we actually know very little about. And it's not as simple as cows trampling sage-grouse nests, though that does happen. These scientists are trying to understand what the two animals need to survive at different times of the year. In the wintertime, sage-grouse survive on sagebrush, but when the birds are nesting in the early summer, they need grasses of a certain height to hide their nests from predators. And then later, when they're raising their young during the hottest part of the year, the birds seek out wet meadows, or potholes of moisture in the sagebrush, and then the growing chicks will chow down on all the insects and flowers and leafy plants that grow there. Cows tend to like those wet spots at that time of year, too. So therein lies the tension. I wanted to know if science like Tracy's could help ranchers graze their cows in a way that doesn't compete with the sage grouse. So the next morning, I headed over a mountain pass and dropped down into a lush little valley not far from the Montana border, known as the Lemhi Valley.
1: Uh, my name is Merrill Beeler. We're next to a group of cows, as you may hear. Uh, it's pretty common to see sage-grass in this area.
0: Merrill's relatives have been in the Lemhi Valley off and on since the first Mormon settlers arrived in the mid-1800s. He and his wife, Cheryl, started ranching here in the early 70s and raised their five kids alongside hundreds of Black Angus cows.
1: Yeah. Well, you ready to go? Ready to go. Kay.
0: Merrill mounts his horse Bronco, and I tuck my recording gear into my saddlebags and get on a big brown and white horse named Jack, which Merrill joked was short for Jackhammer. And we ride into the sagebrush where Merrill grazes his cows. I don't think there's a better way to experience wide open sagebrush country than on horseback. And if you really want to look closely at this landscape, ride through it with a rancher. There is so much more to see than sagebrush when you look at it through their eyes. Merrill points a gloved hand at the ground as we ride along.
1: Just kind of take a look around the sagebrush, and you should see grasses. Okay, if you've grazed it to the point where those cattle are eating the grass right under the sagebrush, you've overdone it.
0: Okay. So three key things I've learned about grazing and how it impacts the land. First, it's about intensity. How many cows do you have on the land? Next, it's timing, when the cows are on the land. And finally, duration. How long are the cows there? As we ride along, Merrill's looking closely at the height of the grass. He literally pointed out how many bites were taken off specific plants on the side of the trail because that tells him how long the cows were there. If the grass starts to look short or eaten down, he knows it's time to move his cows. Overgrazing is bad for business. Allowing your cows to eat grass down to the nub of the plant can make it harder for it to regrow. And it's also bad for sage grouse. Overgrazing leaves less grass for the grouse to hide and nest in. We ride down into a narrow, wet meadow, this deep green stripe against the surrounding light green, dry sagebrush. And I'm really glad my mare Pistol's not here because she would want nothing to do with this water crossing. Jack, however, doesn't even pause.
1: And I think they'll go right across. They should. Right here. We've had cattle in here this year. So what you're seeing is, is if you're looking at it right today, does it look like any livestock have been here at all?
0: It's pretty lush.
1: Yeah, you don't see hardly any indication that livestock is here. So when we're talking about, you know, timing, so you're on an area, and then when you leave the area, you want to be gone from the area.
0: Merrill's worked out an agreement with the Bureau of Land Management, which leases him this pasture. So he takes his cows off for the hottest part of the summer. But then he's allowed to put them back out here in the fall, so they'll get some more good grazing before the season's over.
1: That's probably one of the most critical things that you, in you know, management of these areas that you do, is once you've done it, uh, you're through. And then the grass comes back, and that's what you leave for the sage grass.
0: This management strategy is based in part on some of the research Tracy Johnson is doing at Rinker Rock Creek Ranch. She and her colleagues have found that if you graze cows in wet areas like this for short bursts early in the summer, and then you take them off for a bit, the grass will recover in time for more grazing in the fall, so your cows will put on just as much weight. And there will be some time for sage-grouse to use the landscape too. But here's an interesting twist, Tracy's research suggests that taking this approach to grazing might actually encourage the growth of specific plants that sage-grouse rely on. What we're thinking is if you come in at the right time um, of the season and hit it at the right intensity, so remove the right amount of plant material, you can kind of let some of those other forbs, those broadleaf plants, um, get established. Basically use the cows like a thinning instrument. Right, they're a tool. But the idea is that we can use them as little, you know, machines to create very specific conditions on the ground for sage grouse. It takes more work and time to move cows around instead of leaving them in one spot for the whole grazing season. And not all ranchers have the time or staff to relocate their herds constantly like Merrill does and keep them out of those wet areas where grouse like to hang out. That's where regulation comes in, especially if ranchers are grazing their cows on public lands. State and federal agencies have a role to play in making sure the land isn't being destroyed. And the Bureau of Land Management makes detailed assessments of the health of the rangeland to set limits on how many cows are allowed there and when ranchers can put them out. There's a lot of tension around that regulatory relationship and lawsuits, Some environmentalists say the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service are too lenient with ranchers who graze on public lands. And some ranchers say they're overregulated. It's a balancing act, right? But it's created some animosity in recent years between the federal government and ranchers over access to public lands. Demonstrators have rallied to support Bundy, leading to an altercation with law enforcement officials on Wednesday, when one of Bundy's sons was tased after kicking a police. Just look at arm. men like Cliven Bundy, the rancher in Nevada who led an armed standoff with federal and state agents over his belief that he had a right to graze his cows free of charge on public lands. Tensions reached the boiling point earlier. Merrill says Cliven is an outlier,
1: and so there are those that look at Cliven and Bundy and his stance and rally behind it. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you it's a minority of ranchers.
0: Merrill knows he couldn't make a living as a rancher if he couldn't graze his cows on public lands. And if the Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management doesn't like how the land looks after his cows are on it or he violates his permit, Merrill could lose that access. Ranchers in this valley have chosen a different route from the Bundys, in part thanks to Merrill's example. He believes in a more collaborative approach to regulation that involves visiting with regulators in person, breaking bread together, talking about what they're seeing on the land and how it can be
1: improved. If you value something, you're going to invest in it. Doesn't matter what it is.
0: Do you value sage-grass?
1: Yeah, I think I do.
0: Do you value them as much as cows?
1: Well, now, you're talking to a rancher. No, Uh, no, if you were actually, if you had to pick, you'd pick the sage grass. Really? Really? Yeah. Come on, you're blowing smoke. No. No, I mean, if it came right down to it, simply because, you know, You make the journey one time. And uh, you don't want to do something that ruins it for generations to come.
0: If there's one thing I've learned from spending time with ranchers, especially the ones who have been working the land for generations, It's that they see time differently. It moves cyclically, season to season, year to year, generation to generation. And they hang on, and they watch the land change incrementally over lifetimes. They don't move from apartment to apartment or take a job in a new city every few years. They stay to see the results of the changes they make in the way they manage the land. And they weather changes in the market, too. The economics of ranching look different now than they did when Merrill first got into ranching. The size of farms and ranches has increased. And the bottom line, the price per pound, rules all. Ranchers are often held over a barrel by the middlemen in the business, the distributors, the feedlots, the meatpacking industry. And it makes it hard for them to find the time or the money to make big changes or take risks in the way they do things. If you're running a family ranch, like Merrill Beeler or Craig Bosel back in my home valley, you're doing it not because it's lucrative or easy, but because it's a way of life that you love and are committed to. I visited with Craig Bosel one day after moving cows together, and we sat in the living room of his parents' house where he grew up, though no one's lived in it for years. There are water stains and cracks in the walls, mousetraps scattered around the old linoleum floors, and a rust-colored couch from the 60s. I didn't record this conversation. I think it may not have happened if I'd tried, to be honest. Craig talked to me about his land. It's dwindled over the years as he sold off chunks here and there to make ends meet. People have come in and built homes on it. None of his kids want to take over the ranch when he passes on. He told me he's put legal protections on what's left of the ranch to make sure it will stay a ranch after he's gone. And then he paused, and he said, I know you're not supposed to try to control things from the grave, but all I want to do is protect this dirt. It would be easier for ranchers to let their cows run rampant, to not move them often enough to prevent overgrazing or keep them out of important areas for sage grouse. It would be easier for ranchers like Marilyn Craig To just give up on cows altogether. It would be easier to sell off the land, cash out, and make way for ranchettes and vacation cabins. But sage-grouse need wide-open, healthy landscapes. And I think we do, too. Next episode, Wilson Wiwa, an elder of the northern Paiute tribe of the Warm Springs Reservation in Oregon, remembers his first encounter with sage-grouse. My grandpa and I went to get some water from the spring, and he heard, um, we heard that fluttering sound, kind of like a popping noise. And as a little boy of about five or six years old, I got scared. I didn't know what it was. But we went through that sagebrush and then we got to a place where we had a good vantage point and we seen the um, sage hens doing their dance. And we'll hear an ancient story about a grieving woman and the sage-grouse that help her. That's next. This podcast was edited by Whitney Henry Lester. Sound designed by Liza Yeager. Grouse was produced in partnership with Bird Note Presents and was made possible with support from Jim and Beerta Faulkner. I'm Ashley Ahern. Thanks so much for listening.